If I could have the lights up just a little bit, that would be great. And uh, it's good to pray. If I was going to, um, if I was going to write the Bible, if I had been given the privilege by God to give him an outline, there are many things in this book that I would not include. Um, there are many situations and commands and instructions and life principles and things that we need to understand and be aware of that I would go, really, Lord, can we not just do without that in life? You know, like if I, if I was, was going to present to God a life plan, then it would be very different, I think, from what it seems that God presents to us, not only in the reality of our own lives, but in the reality of the Scriptures. And as we come to the Scriptures, we're presented with something that is, as the Bible itself says, is far higher than our thinking. And what we need to do as Christians and a people as we approach the Bible, regardless of whether you've been a Christian five minutes or 50 years, we need to approach the Bible with a very high view of God, a very high view of the Word, and a very low view of our thoughts and how we experience and what we think. And it's very difficult to do this, um, but you can train your thinking if you read the Scriptures regularly enough and you approach it in a humble way, that if there's something in the Scripture that kind of jars with your, uh, with your desire and with your wants and how you would like life to be, then I encourage you to doubt that thought more than doubt God. Because... You know, the Bible, as we said last week, it says that, the, that God is eternal. He's everlasting to everlasting. And I'm 44 years old, and the Scripture says I'm literally a vapor in the whole scheme of the universe, in the whole scheme of eternity. I'm just a... That's what my life is, and, and so I have to be careful I don't stand arrogantly against the God of eternity and go, well, you know what? I don't think this is the way it should be. I think... And brain belch nonsense generally is what happens then as soon as I start relying on what I think because I've been proven several times over to be a bit of a village idiot. And so I need to be very careful when I approach the scriptures that I do so in a way that is not putting a high value on my thoughts, my experience, but to actually humble myself in front of the scriptures and say, okay, Lord, I don't get this. This is hard. This is, this is really challenging. I actually, if I'm honest, don't like it, but I'm, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you know what you're doing. And I'm going to share with you this morning some of the most troubling scriptures I believe in the Bible. And there's one particular passage that I think is the hardest scripture to put into practice. And we're going to get to that in a minute, and there's a, there's a, a psalm that we're going to anchor in in a second. But there's one particular book that I really struggle with, uh, and it's the book of Job. The book of Job, if you've, you've not read it, is the oldest book in the Bible, even though it's not at the beginning. The Bible isn't chronological. You, you can read it chronologically. It's the oldest book written in the Bible. It's Job. And I'm sure you know the story of Job, that Job was an upright man. In fact, the scriptures say that he was a blameless, upright, God-fearing, and turned away from evil. This dude had actually made a covenant with his eyes not to lust after anything. And, and the scripture says he stayed committed. He was a God-fearing, upright, righteous, blameless. How many of us could go, yep, that's me. Throw that on my resume, blameless. 
I don't know whether we could do that. I mean, I couldn't. Maybe, maybe some of you could, and you could give me some tips. But Job was as good as it gets. And then there's this really strange part of the story where it says that Satan comes into the presence of God with some angels, and he basically accuses God and says, well, the reason that Job is so blessed is because, you know, is that you protect him. And so God says, well, have at it. You go for it. And then there's this passage in the beginning of Job where it starts detailing some of the things that happened to Job. And, and so we need to be very careful, by the way, when we sing, um, uh, he, he gives and takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, because that's actually from Job. And, and so we need to be careful how we equate our own lives to Job's lives, because not getting that job isn't a Job experience. Job experience is where you lose all your family, they all die, your friends... You're, everything is taken away from you all within the same day. And then he says, blessed be the name of the Lord, he gives and takes away. And then Satan starts having a go at his actual physical body. And there's a place in the scriptures where it talks about that Job is covered in such horrible boils that he's taking broken pottery and scraping his skin to get some relief from the itching. This, this guy is going through it. He's having a a really challenging time. It's a very confusing story, but what we need to understand, as with life, and this this is my main point, there is something bigger going on that Job has no clue about at all. There is something bigger going on that if you just look at the story in and of itself, regardless of your view of the Bible, if you just look at that story... You know, you might dismiss it as being factually inaccurate or whatever, and I'm not going to get into that. But I, I, the, the reality is, I believe it is factually accurate, but I also believe there's something way bigger going on. And the reason we know that is right at the end in chapter 39, God has been listening to this conversation between Job and his buddies about, you know, what's happening and et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then God answers Job. That's what it says at the top of my chapter. God answers Job. And I'm like, this is going to be good. And you know what? God does not give one answer to Job. Not anything at all. In fact, he starts off somewhat awkwardly, basically saying, hey, man up, Job. That's essentially what he says. You read it. Were you there when I created the world? I don't remember seeing you. Were you there when I pulled all this together? Who do you think you are, Job? is essentially what God says. And it's that, that kind of awkward moment. Ooh. Remember that? When it, when, it, when it gets really awkward and somebody's being told off next to you and you're like, ooh. Like Job is getting it. Man up, Job. is God's response. And then in Romans 9, there's this intriguing verse. In verse 20, it says, this is Paul talking. And again, it's on the back of us having lots of questions about how God exists and why does he do what he's doing? And why does God let that happen to this person and not that person? And why is good happening to evil people and yet the righteous are experiencing bad things? Why does God choose some people uh, and, and not others? And so this is what Paul says. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? You see where this is getting uncomfortable? This is like, we don't like this. We don't like this in the West because my values and my thoughts are paramount. What I think is most important, my experience is most important. And we breed this into our children even. Like we make them the center of the universe. Go, whatever you think is right. Well, you know, it's good and you are the center. And no, and Paul's telling, actually, no, who are you, oh man? To answer back to God, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel vessel for honorable use and another one for dishonorable use? It's like, this is God. There's a bigger thing going on. There's a bigger picture. And I want to make this statement, and I'm going to refer to it often, but I'm very, very serious in it. You will not make sense of life until you understand that there is a bigger picture. You will not make sense of what you are going through right now unless you understand who it is that we're approaching. That there's a bigger thing going on. We've been having uh, some issue the last few years at the front of our house. By the way, is Colleen here this morning? Is Colleen here? There she is. They came around, Colleen and Marion, and she made a comment about my grass, which I really appreciated. She thought my grass was looking good this year. And as those of you who have been in the South long enough know that grass is a constant illustration because it's a constant battle at my house. But anyway, it's looking pretty good. But what we have this year is ants. We have three ants' nests, which I have been trying to kill off. They have no clue that there's a bigger picture going on. They're scurrying around, getting on with whatever ants do. And then I come along and I kill a few off with my feet. And then I throw what looks like icing sugar down from Rona or whatever. And then actually, it's actually been working this year. They have been dying off. So praise the Lord for that. My prayers are really deep, as you can tell. Dear Lord, take away my aunt. I don't think I've ever prayed that. But they have no idea there's a bigger picture going on. They have no clue. They just scurry around, getting on with life. And we, in some sense, is the same. We're scurrying around in the vapor that we have, and we don't know how long it is. It says in Acts 17, 26, that God has given you a parameter to live in. He's determined the boundaries of your life. We don't like that. We don't like that, because we want to be in control. But the reality is, the Scripture says, and life tells us, we're not in control. We have this boundary And we scurry around in it. And unless we understand there's a bigger picture, we will constantly, friends, constantly be frustrated. Constantly bitter. Pain is real. It's a a part of our life. And I have to be very careful as a pastor when I preach these things because I want to be very loving and I want to be very truthful. And oftentimes those two things go together. The most loving thing I can do is tell the truth as a pastor and as a dad and as a friend and as a husband, gently and lovingly, and that's my plan today. I want to be very gentle and I want to understand that pain is very real, whether it be physical pain or whether it be emotional pain or whether it be um, psychological pain. Pain is real. Some of you are experiencing all different kinds of pain even this morning, and I know from my life, you know, even the last few years as some of you have journeyed with us, it's been really painful. There's been times where you get to the point where you're going, okay, Lord, I'm done. I'm done. If you give me a button right now, I'm quite willing to press it. I'm done. This hurts. And if we don't understand the bigger picture and we only understand the here and now, then life can get extremely, even more so, painful. In fact, the pain that we experience physically or emotionally or circumstantially actually accentuates by the pain of feeling like we're forgotten and unloved and God doesn't care. 
And so here's the most difficult passage, I believe, in the Bible to put into effect. And if you're a new Christian or an older Christian or anywhere in between, we really need to be reminded of this as a church and as a family. This is perhaps one of the most important things that you can learn and constantly remind yourself of. This isn't a one-time, yep, did that, that was chapter 1, now I'm on chapter 23. This is, this is a constant need. And so here it is, James chapter 1 and verse 2. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Okay, let's just stop there. Let's read that again. Count it all joy, my brothers or sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. See, when I think of joy, I don't think of trials. (laughs) I think of happiness and health and feeling good. I don't think of trials. And yet, Paul is saying here, sorry, James is saying here, count it all joy. Consider it, some of your translations say. So you actually need to look at your trials joyfully when you meet trials of various kinds. And that that word various literally is all-encompassing. It's this being totally surrounded. That's what it, it, Imagine this, that if you're walking down a high street and suddenly a group of people surround you ready to beat you up. It's that kind of picture. So count it all joy when you are constantly surrounded with all sorts of different trials. Now, I don't know about you, but this isn't very Western when it comes to what joy happens. This isn't, this isn't you know, kind of uh, finding your inner Zen in the middle of yoga. You know, that what that world will tell you you're going to find joy in is you're not going to find joy in that. That's a whole other sermon. He's saying you're going to find joy in various trials. And then he carries on. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So keep that scripture up on the on there. That would be great. Thank you. So here's the bigger picture. This is the thing that we need to understand and come into a, a deep knowledge of, not just a mental knowledge, but an experiential knowledge of. We need to understand that when it comes to trials of various kinds, when you are completely surrounded, where you just feel, okay, I know something's going to hit or something has hit, and, I'm, and you just think, man, I can't take anything else. You might get a physical ailment, and then something else happens in your job, and then something happens in your family. You just feel beaten up. Here's the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So I read that and go, well, actually, Lord, if I'm honest, I don't like this. (laughs) I don't like this scripture. But Glenn, you're a pastor. You're meant to like all scripture. No, no, don't, don't like this one because as a human, I read this and go, well, you can keep your steadfastness. Thank you very much. I'll just have joy and happiness instead. And if you were honest Christians, which I know all of you are, you'd agree. I'd be like, actually, no, I, steadfastness, I don't even really know what that means. I don't, I don't really need that. Just, just give me some tranquility and joy and painless existence. That sounds good to me. That, that would be joyful. But Paul is saying the reason that you need to count it all joy is because your testing of your faith in the midst of your trial will produce this steadfastness. And then he goes on and let this steadfastness have full effect. So what he means is, is that 
Trial comes. We look at the trial in a certain way. This is really important. Listen to this. We look at the trial in a, through a certain lens. This lens says this trial is here in order to test me. And we'll look at that in a second. This testing will produce steadfastness. And this steadfastness ultimately will, what? Make me perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's a process. Can you see that? Trial, look at the trial in a certain way, because you recognize it's being tested, produces steadfastness. Steadfastness produces uh, completion, maturity, lacking in nothing. So we have the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that God... The scriptures tell us time and time again is far more interested in you being perfect and complete and mature than he is in your temporary happiness that this world would say you need in order to be perfect, complete and mature. Real perfection, completion, joy and, um, and lacking nothing. Now I don't know about you but in the Greek nothing is a really interesting word. What it means is nothing means nothing. You're, you're not going to lack anything. Nothing at all. Name it, you're going to have abundance of it. So now I'm going to go, well, does that mean houses and cars and good? No, 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 no. Because now we're back to the temporary rather than the eternal. See, God's plan is for you to become like Jesus. Jesus lived a life that you and I are unable to live outside of God's help and died a death that you and I truly deserve to die because of our sin. So Jesus says, God says, in order to make you more like Jesus, you're going to need these trials. And so if we realize, listen, if we realize how incredible this is, being mature and complete and lacking nothing, we can take anything in this world. Anything. If we truly understand how amazing completion is. Being complete. Everything you could possibly imagine and desire and want, every desire that you have that's been placed inside you by God will be complete. You will get it all, lacking nothing. May not be in this world, but then we heard two weeks ago that there's a hope in front of us that will allow us to actually endure the trial with joy. See, the scriptures talk about this, for those of us who are a little bit more interested in the theological words, is the word sanctification. This process of becoming more and more like Jesus, there's a past sanctification that we get his righteousness. There's a present sanctification that happens right now. We become day by day, I hope that you are improving. I hope that you are different now than you were last year. If you're not, then you are not maturing as a Christian. So there's this present, constant sanctification to becoming more like Jesus. Essentially becoming nicer every day. More like Jesus. And then there's a future sanctification that will only happen when we get to heaven, where the scriptures say we will be like Jesus. Not be Jesus. We're not Mormons. We're not going to be mini-gods, having lots of sex for all eternity, making other mini-gods. That's Mormonism, and it's heretical and wrong. Okay? But be like Jesus in his joy and completion and maturity. If we can just focus on that. So it says this in Psalm 66 verse 10. For you, O God, have tested us and you have tried us as silver is tried. For you, O God, have tested us and you have tried us as silver is tried. It's the same word that you'll see in James. 
I didn't tell Sarah what we were, um, what I was preaching about this morning, but he, she's already talked about being refined. And I don't know what, if you know, I'm sure some of you do, but what would happen, and this is what Psalms is referring to, and what James is referring to when it says, by the testing of your faith, is, is, a, is a blacksmith or somebody who was uh, a jewelry maker or used gold or silver would actually heat up. And I've actually, I did this at university as part of my degree. I did um, design technology. So I actually got to smelt some pewter, I think it was. They wouldn't give us gold or silver because the students just run off with it. But they gave us pewter and you warm it up and it, it slowly starts to bubble and you get this scum on the top. And you scrape it off and then you heat it up more. Now a silversmith or a goldsmith would constantly do this and it was called testing. You were testing the gold. You were basically making it more and more pure. The more you heated it, you scraped off the junk. You heat it more, more junk. Heat it more, more junk. You'd scrape it off until eventually the goldsmith, and think about this picture, it's beautiful. The goldsmith and the silversmith knew that it was ready when they could see their face in the silver and the gold. Now it's ready. No more junk. So here's the picture that James is presenting to us. He's saying the things that we are having to endure, the pain that is very real, that by the way, God is not kind of belligerently just folding his arms and is impervious to, in the same way that when you allow your kids to go through something that you know is good for them, you're not kind of going, this is awesome. You're actually feeling the pain with them, but you understand it's important for them to go through it because their ultimate aim as God is so that he can see himself in you. Isn't that amazing? He's like, here's the end. You can do this because the testing of your faith will produce perseverance and steadfastness. You will stick with it and it will ultimately mean that I will see your, that you will have my face reflected in your life. So then as Christians, we go into the world and we live amongst our neighbors and our friends and our brothers and here's what they'll see. They'll go, you're different. Like, say you're not a Christian, you suddenly become a Christian after you've submitted your life to Jesus and you've asked him and, and you've asked for forgiveness, you become a Christian, people will start noticing. And you know what they're noticing? They're noticing his reflection in your life and it's odd to them. In fact, they won't like it. They'll hate you for it. But that's what they see. And I think we forget how incredible this process actually means. You'll be mature and strong, and you'll be pure. So let me say something that is truthful but difficult to hear. The circumstances and the trials and the pain that is very real happening in your life cause the junk to rise to the top. When I was ill a couple of years ago, my adrenal gland gave up, and I just tanked. And I've shared with some of you, you know, I, I got into a very low place. Sarah even said the other day, she said, I don't know how you got up and preached. I said, I, I don't know how I got outside of my closet. And I'm not even joking. There were times when I just closed my closet and I just want to sit in the dark for hours. Here's what happened through that pain. is all the junk, not all of it, a good amount of it, rose to the top. God used that to highlight some things in my life that otherwise would have just stayed at the bottom. You went, okay, Glenn, we need to deal with this. And I didn't want to deal with it. I fought it. I knew it was true. I hated it. 
But it just kept on coming and he scrapes it off and then he heats some more and he scrapes it off until eventually he sees his reflection in my life. Now when you're in the middle of that, you're not going, oh, praise the Lord. It hurts. But if you ground yourself in the scriptures and you ground yourself in his word and hear me, if you don't wait until the pain comes before you actually come to him, this is very important, that you fill your life with scriptures, you fill your life with prayer, you surround yourself with biblical community, that when the pain actually comes, you are ready that even through the pain you can cry out and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. These boils hurt, I want to scrape them, but... Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives. He takes away. I've lost my children. Blessed be the name of the Lord because I know his plan is bigger than me. Can you see that? Does that mean we don't pray for the trials to go? Well, it's interesting in the New Testament, you see very little evidence of New Testament Christians praying for God to take the circumstances away. You see a lot of evidence of New Testament Christians praying for strength and boldness to endure through the testing. Do we pray for healing? Absolutely. Do we pray in belief and faith? Absolutely. But while God, oh, I was going to say tarries, how traditional am I? While God tarries, I should write that down, love. Showing my roots. While he doesn't seem to be answering the prayer as quickly as we'd want him to, tarries, then we can endure. Can you see that? Don't wait until the trial comes before you go, okay, I've got to read myself a sermon. I need some joy. It's not going to work. I mean, fun trying out, but it won't work. Because the Bible is not some potion book that you throw at a problem. This is why the prosperity gospel, I just want to get them in a room and just... God, what are you thinking? Why, where have you got in the Bible that if you do certain things that God is going to give you good things? That's just insane at best. Evil for sure. Because the opposite is true. God will allow circumstances come to your life to allow the scum to rise to the top so he can scrape it away. And it stinks sometimes. My daughter came home the other day from uh, visiting Laura. And whenever you go to Laura and, and Lyndon's house, something very exciting happens. Laura usually has baked. How many of you experienced some of Laura's baking? Look at the impact, the ministry, Laura. This is just code for, can you, can you give me some more? Now, I don't know anything about baking other than I think I could get a box of the ready mix, maybe. Is it called ready mix or is that cement? But I I think eggs, right? A bit of salt, maybe. You put some mint, which is very luxurious and posh. Uh, Flour, sugar, what else? Butter, baking powder. If you got each of those individually, and I started shoveling flour into your mouth, then I'm going to guess that you're going to go, oh, that's disgusting. Then butter, here's a big slab of butter, try that. And then until you got to the chocolate chips or the sugar, that, that, that wouldn't be so bad. But each of the individual ingredients in and of themselves are actually really bitter to taste or not very nice to experience. But together you get a Laura's cookie and it tastes amazing. So you take each of your individual circumstances, you put them all individually, they are painful. You put it all together, you get the reflection of God in your life. And then, 
Maybe a young pastor will visit you. No, I'm being serious now. Maybe a young pastor will visit you at the end of your days. Like I have had the experience with Ed. And I will see God's reflection in you. Notice I call myself young. Ed would laugh at that. But you would see the reflection of God in your life. Then he goes on in James. If any of you lacks wisdom. In the back of that. This is code for. If you don't get that. Okay. We got that scripture I think. If any of you lack wisdom. I think it's the next one. We got it. If any of you lacks wisdom. If you don't get what I'm just explained to you. James is saying. Then ask God. Who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him or her. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when I preached about that we should ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him? It's exactly the same. We should ask. And so this morning, if you are going through great challenge and you are going through pain and you are going through difficulty, then yes, pray that God heals, pray that God corrects, pray that God changes it. But more than anything, pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation, Ephesians 1, in the knowledge of him so that you might be able to understand that there's a bigger picture going on, that even in the midst of the pain, you can approach it with some joy. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. I've got to a stage now in my life where I'm able to look back at certain situations and challenges over the last 44 years. And even the ones that are the most painful. And and we do this dreadful thing as Christians. Oh, you think that's painful? Then give me five minutes and let me tell you what real pain is like, my friend. Can we just get over that? But what is really painful for you is, might be different from me. I might shrug my shoulders and go, oh, suck it up, princess. What's the problem? But, you know, the other way around, it might be catastrophic. So let's just not be judgmental one another. But I am able to look at the pain that I have experienced, and I'm actually able to say, Thank- I'm thankful that God would count me worthy, that he would choose me to be perfect reflecting him and would allow me to go through this circumstance to bring some of that about after the fact I can do that in the midst of it I have to fight for it and that's why you need biblical community that's why you need a community group friends if you're not in a community group you are isolated by yourself this is this isn't real church this is just big gathering real church happens every day everyday church see that every day and part of that a big part of that is community group Because you need people when you're going through pain. But if you don't get it, then you won't just get it with experience. If you don't understand, you won't get it with just experience. You won't understand what life is actually about. You need to ask God. And he says he will give it to you generously. You will understand that there will be something that rises up in you. And you will just be able to grab onto that faith and understanding it, even though this is hard. And friends, life is hard. And if you are too young to have experienced anything hard, it's going to come. It's going to come. And then he says in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. No, that is so anti-West North America. How can a lowly brother boast in his exaltation? And then even more confusingly, verse 10, and the rich in his humiliation. 
You see how he's turned it around? He's like, look, if you are going through difficult stuff, you should boast because the end result. But if you are just having comfort in your life, then buckle up, buddy, because that is not going to end up in the way that you hope it will. You might have temporary, but you won't have eternal. Life is easy right now, but it won't last. And so in our culture, we focus on the immediate and we forget about the eternal, the forever. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will a rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In verse 12 it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who what? Who love him. So he says, look, if you love me, then part and parcel of the deal is you're going to get trials. This is where the prosperity gospel is absolute nonsense. Because the God who loves us, it says here, is going to allow us to be tested. Not the God who loves us means there's no pain and suffering. You're just going to get rich. That's just nonsense. Like, where do they get this stuff? I don't even... I don't spend my time researching it. I've got better things to do. But love... Love equals being tested. Love equals God the Father allowing his children to go through things that ultimately are going to make them like him. Scriptures even say, and I'd love to jump into this more and I haven't got time, but we would in a community group. He'll even use sin to bring about his ends. He never originates with God because he's sinless, but he will allow sin to actually result in something good. Case in point, Jesus Christ, the Bible says, died at the hands of sinful men that ultimately meant good. And so even the worst, most despicable abuse and horror that this world has to offer, ultimately, the scriptures say, can end in good for his glory, your joy, in the end. In the present pain, it doesn't feel that way, but if we understand the bigger picture then we can anchor in. Does that make sense? How much better is that than being bitter and angry at a God who we think doesn't love us because it's painful? It's just not what the scripture says. Blessed will you be if you can persevere. When you look at life through this lens, then it's freeing. This is why Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's nothing you can do to me that is going to put me down. Because the Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who endured the cross in all its horror, did that, the scripture says in Hebrews. He endured the shame for the joy that was set before him. So he was able to endure that pain. All the sin of all those who believe in him, on him, died with him so that we could have this freedom, this righteousness, this love, this endurance, this maturity, this perfection, this lacking nothing is ours through Christ who died on the cross who set the example of enduring and being steadfast. Scripture says, Jesus himself said, nobody takes my life. I will give it. He died exactly when he wanted to die. It is finished. And he endured that because of my sin that I am incapable of doing anything about that is slowly and surely killing me. I can ask to be placed upon him, believing in him. The scripture says, if you confess that he is Lord, 
then it gets placed on him, dies with him, and you and I get newness of life. That's the gospel. But then Jesus does something. This is an illustration that is a very old one, actually, from Spurgeon's time. Let me paint you a picture as I finish. Before I get into the illustration, you need to understand there are times when we come to church that we leave with much to ponder. And I have not said anything flippantly or disregarding pain. But times when we actually, I cause you to maybe just think, how do I respond to this? The illustration is this. Imagine that Jesus came and stood at that door. And as you leave, he's got a card, two cards. One card says A, the other card says B. Card A is this coming year, you're going to get everything that you want. You're going to get the job you want. You're going to get the partner you want. Present or future. (laughs) You're going to get the money that you want. But suddenly that which you're hoping for, you're going to get those new clients. You're going to get the boat that you've been dreaming about. You're going to get the car that you've been lusting over, I mean looking at. Everything just comes to you. But you will be no further on in your Christianity at all. You'll be no closer to Jesus. You won't know him any more intimately. But everything that you are dreaming about, your record will sell, your art will sell, you'll suddenly become famous. Everything comes to you, but you will not know Jesus any more than you do right now. Card A. Card B is that you will have trials, and you will have challenges, stuff will get taken away, pain will come, circumstances will press. You will feel at times like you cannot cope. It feels like your breath is being taken away by all the difficulty that's coming into your life. However, after a year, you will be more like Jesus and you will know him deeper. Card A, card B. Which card would you take? Now, I'm not going to ask for a raising of hands. But I want you to think about that. Because that reveals a heart. Some of you have had card B for years and you're thinking, I'd like a little bit of card A just to try, just for a bit. You can have it back at the end of the year, just for a little while. Some of you have been having card A with a bit of card B, but mainly card A because you really know that your faith hasn't increased or developed and you haven't joined a community group. You've not taken on more responsibility. You've not jumped into more ministry. You've not told people about Jesus, but you're kind of, yeah... Some of you are just here. God, deep down inside, you know. Yeah, I would give up all the eternal stuff just so I... You wouldn't verbalize it, and I'm pressing it, but just so I can get that dream fulfilled. Because you know why? And this is what our culture would say. You deserve it. He got it. She's got it. You deserve it. Card A, card B. Because that is really the answer as to how you look at life through. And can I tell you a card? A will only produce pain, challenge, bitterness, anger towards God because you will feel like you deserve that which you are not getting. Whereas card B produces joy, peace, strength, maturity because you're constantly pointing towards Jesus and seeking what is ultimately the most important thing which is becoming more like him. Card A, card B. Card A, card B. Maybe on the front of your journey you should write A or B. 
And I, and I did this this week. I really had, I prayed. I came before the Lord and I had to confess, Father, I've got to say, I think it's been card A. A lot of the time I think it's card A. Except my card A looks different. My card A looks like bigger church, less pastoral issues, less marriage breakups, less death. You know, I just want to just, can I just be, can I just be one of those kind of countryside pastors? Oh no, better still, can I be like Stephen Furtick just for a year? Like lights and labors and big stage and able to rap a preach? You know, and people, people standing up while I preach and going, oh yeah. <laughs> Wendy, I can see you doing this. Preach it, Glenn. Just, just, can I try that? If I'm honest, that's where I've been. But then, card B, maybe card B is a church for 100 people. And a lot of pastoral issues, and a lot of challenges, and a lot of hatred from the community because we're seeking to be missional. Maybe that's card B, that we're not codependent, comfortable, but we're actually missional and hated. But that, I think, is more like what church should be. <laughs> With maybe a little bit of that thrown in every now and again. I don't know. But I think there are times when we have to be serious and go, Okay, Lord, I love you, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way that I have approached you. I've thought about my life more than I've thought about what the bigger picture is all about. Let's pray.